but we're so thankful for each one each week to uh, sing and lead us in music and song. Thank you, John. And Go ahead and take a few moments then to pray silently, and then I'll open us up in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do have that uh, humility that we read about and that we just sang about as a fruit of your Spirit that has re- has revealed to us that we are redeemed people, that we are redeemed sinners, and the cost of our redemption was the precious blood of the Son, and our Lord, that you, in fulfillment of that eternal purpose of God, did purchase us by your own blood for the inheritance that we have in you and the glory that is ours in you as we anticipate that the wonders of heaven and we long for that increase that longing in us even today and this morning as we look at your word open our eyes to not merely understand with our minds but to receive and apprehend with our hearts and to respond to you by faith and the movement of our will to live for you in your name jesus amen uh, there's like a hum. Can y'all hear this hum? The... There we go. That's better. All right. Well, why don't you open up your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. We're going to be looking this morning uh, primarily at verses six and seven, uh, but entering into this section really that goes from verses one through eleven. Last week we looked at verses one through six, but. I barely made mention of verse 6 there at the end, so we'll include that, which it can, we can do because of the unity of this section uh, in Peter's point this morning. And namely what Peter is doing, and really here in a very distinct sense, though all of Scripture is designed to this end, is giving us perspective, giving us perspective. So much of our attitude and response to this world is about perspective. It's the way that we think about things. That is in a big picture is called a worldview. A worldview. It's the filter through which we evaluate and we see and we discern uh, the world around us. And so that is what Peter is doing this morning. And so I want to get to Peter's point this morning, and primarily in verses 6 through 7, uh, by reminding you of something that came my way. If any of y'all get the Desiring God blog, y'all got this too from John Bloom and And I thought it was so appropriate uh, for what Peter is drawing our attention to this morning. I just want to remind you of it. He's he's speaking, this author of uh, a Christian brother that he knew or met or interacted with during traveling in the Middle East. And this brother, whose name had to remain concealed, was involved with ministry there, evangelism, and with his wife, and was in danger Every moment of his life, as we understand the violence that goes on against Christians in predominantly Muslim countries. And so it is for this man. And he says this of him. He says, my new friend lives in an Islamic country where sharing the gospel, if you're caught, 
will get you thrown into prison and likely tortured to extract information about other Christians. Yet he and his wife are daily diligently, daily diligently seeking to share the gospel with others because they want to share with them in its blessing. Even more than that, they want their own survival. Each morning when this husband and wife part ways, they acknowledge to one another that it might be the last time they see each other. She knows if caught, part of her torture will almost assuredly include rape, probably repeatedly. He knows, if caught, brutal things await him before a likely execution. For them, to live as Christ and to die is gain. He says later, one wrong move and a whole network of believers could be exposed. So they depend on the Holy Spirit to specifically lead them to people the Spirit has prepared. For them, the doctrine of election is not some abstract theological controversy for seminary students to debate. They see it played out in front of them continually. In other words, these are those who know by experience what we understand as Christians and as theological truth, that Paul states that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as Paul said to the Corinthians that he dies daily, which means in the execution of his ministry, he willingly takes his life uh, or presents his life as at the disposal of the Lord to be faithful in his ministry. He dies to himself daily and he's ready for death daily to be faithful to the Lord. There's a sort of heightened spiritual reality that comes when living under those kind of conditions. There's a heightened dependence upon the Lord. There's a heightened sense of his leading, of his protection, of his empowerment to do what he's called us to do. It's a heightened sense of spirituality that we miss so often in our own culture. And so this article goes on to speak about the effect of being lulled to sleep in the midst of such prosperity. Speaking again of this husband and wife, he notes, A number of years ago, this man and his wife were given the opportunity to move to the States, and they did. After living here for a period of time, however, the wife began to plead with her husband that they move back to their Islamic country of origin, the place where they were living under such danger. Why? She told him, It's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here, and the Christians are asleep, and I feel like I'm falling asleep. Please, let's go back. Which they did. She was pleading to go back to a place of danger because she saw the spiritual lethargy that was creeping in her heart as she spent times here longer, the longer that she spent time here in the States. The author comments, the story contains an urgent message we must hear. She wanted to go back to a dangerous environment to escape what she recognized as a greater danger to her faith. Spiritual lethargy and indifference. This should stop us in our tracks. Do we recognize this is a serious danger? How spiritually sleepy we are? That's the question that Peter would ask us as we read this text penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a group of suffering believers. We need to grasp the message that he gives to us to keep from being lulled to sleep, spiritually lulled to sleep, becoming apathetic lethargic in our pursuit of holiness and our participation with God and his purposes in this world, which is the reconciliation of men to himself through Christ. We are 
too often lulled to sleep by the ease and the influence of our culture, which makes us so comfortable in this world that we long little for the next. It's a distant nicety. It's something that we know we get to have, just like another blessing on top of all of the blessings that we have in this world, only a lot better. Lulled to sleep so often being inundated with entertainment, which makes us comfortable with sin that God hates, as we see it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. And so we can be lulled to sleep spiritually, our souls deadened to true and vibrant worship in the pursuit of holiness. Because we get so comfortable with our surroundings, we forget the urgency and the magnificence and the wonder of the gospel. And we're all a part of it, me as well. But we need to recognize it. And that's the point of Paul's or Peter's exhortation to us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4. And the point of the passage is this in summary. The soon end of the present world gives us a proper perspective to persevering in righteousness and to pursue love to the glory of God. In other words, as we realize the end for which this world was created, as we realize the coming realities to this present world as we know it, it should cause us to have a right perspective that is demonstrated in the way that we live our lives, the things we love, the things we pursue, the things that we long for, the things that we hope for, the things that are important to us. So I just want to note two simple points to this this morning, and we'll wrap it up next week. This morning is this, first, that a right perspective on the world and its end is necessary for Christian obedience, and that this perspective should produce in us a passion for prayer. Let me read, beginning in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 4, down to verse 11, and then we'll swing back around and look at those points. Look at verse 4. It says, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's notice first a right perspective on the world and its end as necessary to an obedient and a faithful Christian life. Now, Peter has already introduced this most basic component, but essential component of a Christian worldview to us in verses 5 and 6. And that is that there's judgment coming on this world. There's judgment. That's something that the church very often likes to shy away from, seems embarrassed about, or if it ever comes up, almost feel like they have to explain it away to somehow lessen the reality so people would not think us Ill, Ill, Ill of us or harsh or unfair. 
But it is basic to a Christian worldview, necessary to a Christian worldview to realize that God's judgment is coming upon this world. That those who remain in rebellion to him, even as Jesus said himself in the gospel, the wrath of God abides on them and will be executed outside of acknowledging and accepting and receiving Christ and following him. And so in the midst of these believers who are suffering... He reminds them that in verse 5 that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But from a biblical worldview, this judgment is not merely the exercise of God's justice that will come under the world for their rejection of Christ. It is also a time of vindication for believers. Remember, these believers are suffering. The believers that this author was talking about this morning are suffering. And the reminder is that this suffering not only will have an end, but the faith for which we suffer, the Christ for which we suffer, the truth for which God's people suffer, will be shown to be right. That believers will be vindicated. And that's his point in verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now that is a striking statement and can be somewhat confusing at first. For this reason also the gospel was preached to the dead. The dead? Who are the dead? What does he mean the gospel was preached to the dead? Well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean here the spiritually dead. He's not making a theological statement about the condition of all men. That's true. We are described in Ephesians, of course, as being spiritually dead apart from Christ. Walking in the course of this world, even as he just described these believers, they were dead. Indulging the desires of the mind and of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's true. But that's not what he's referring to here. Peter has just talked about those who are physically dead, that he will judge the living and the dead. And it's unlikely that he would change the meaning here. And he nowhere uses that language, Peter does anyway, of unbelievers. He refers to death two other times in this epistle, and it's to physical death. So it doesn't mean the spiritually dead here. He's talking about those who have actually died. And it cannot mean that those who actually died have some second chance at redemption as though he were, they had a, the gospel preached to them and in the terrors of judgment they could reconsider their decision to reject Christ and receive all of the benefits of his death and his resurrection. Just common sense before getting into anything specific would say who wouldn't? Who wouldn't in the sufferings of judgment Take whatever opportunity was given to be relieved of that pain. In Luke 16, the, the rich man was there and says, Please send Lazarus to put a drop of water on my tongue to give me some relief of this place of torment. Anyone there would gladly receive that. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here. There is no second opportunity. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And that is a reminder to tell us and to remind us of the, that the day is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
the writer of Hebrews tells us. It's the day of salvation. Why? Because when your day here on earth begins, your last day here on earth comes, and your time in eternity begins, uh, there is no other opportunity to receive the grace that is in Christ. Now is the time to receive him. So he's not talking about some second opportunity here to be saved. It's a reference, again, to those who are currently dead, but had the gospel preached to them, and here's the key, while they were alive. The connection is this. Because of the reality of impending judgment that he just mentioned, the gospel is preached, and those who believe are saved. Those who believed are saved. It is because of judgment, in verse 5, that he says, For this reason, the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. The dead here is dead believers. And the point is this, that things are not as they seem. That things aren't as they seem. That there are consequences after the grave And that for those who have trusted in Christ, those consequences, though dead in this world, though may have, or those may have received death as an act of persecution by unbelievers, are yet alive to God. And that's the second part. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The ESV tries to capture the sense here and says this, though judged the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The New English translation tries to capture the idea this way, though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. So what does he mean here? There's there's two ways that you can understand this. One is he could be saying, referring to all men. And so then Peter would be saying, all men have the gospel preached to them, but some will experience judgment, while others who have believed will experience life. And the main point then would be, for those who understand it this way, that there is the opportunity now to receive forgiveness from this judgment, but whatever decision one makes in response to Christ will bear the eternal consequences of that after they die. Which, in a pagan mindset, what, for, to those pagans, to them, in that culture, was really unthinkable. It was something unique. It was something new. They, they didn't think of the afterlife as bearing those kind of consequences. And so the reminder, then, would be a warning that, in fact, it does bear consequences. One summarized that position this way. Physical death does not exempt those who reject the gospel in this life from judgment, nor does it render the gospel ineffective for those who committed themselves to it when they heard it in this life. Another way, which I think is the best way, is to see the dead here again as dead believers. The idea would be this, then, That in the estimation of men, in the evaluation of men, believers who have died in the flesh were cursed and judged. It'd be the idea of Isaiah 53, where though he was Christ in his death was considered to be accursed and cut off from God, judged by God. The opposite was true. The unbelievers could look with that proud smugness at the death of believers and those who are dying at their hands and consider them to be the ones who are receiving the displeasure of the gods who are weak, who are to be pitied. But in reference to God, 
by God's evaluation, that death is not judgment. It is entrance into life in the fullness in the realm of the spirit. Could be referring here either to the immediate state, which I think is most likely, or ultimately to the resurrection. In either case, the point is that they are alive to God. Those who have died in Christ are alive to God in the realm of the spirit, awaiting the resurrection. And the encouragement is this, that at the time of the final judgment of God, believers then will be vindicated in their faith. They will be shown to be in Christ. Their suffering for Christ, their death for the cause of Christ, will be shown to have been the wisest course. And those who rejected him for the pleasures of this world, those who rejected him to go their own way, will be shown to be in the wrong and to have pursued a foolish course of life. That's the idea. And the day of Christ's return will make that all plain. There will be a complete reversal in man's estimation of Christ and of Christians and of their truth, their obedience to him. And so then he bases on that reality, comes into verse 7. First, then he he says, Christians need to understand and have a long-term view That God's vindication is going to come. There are consequences to sin that will be judgment. And there are consequences to faith which will be life. And there will be vindication. And then he points again in verse 7 based on that to this nearness. The near return of Christ. Or the near return or the near fulfillment of all of these promises. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Again, this is fundamental to a Christian worldview. It's fundamental. We understand the temporary nature of the things of this world. It's how we view everything. It's the lens through which we look at the world and determine the value of all things. We see them for what they are. Christians live wisely in all of Scripture, particularly the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, points us always to the future and says you have to live and think, we have to live and think in light of the end, in light of the end. That's the the great deception, and that's part of what that being lulled to sleep and affluence was that lady was talking about, who said we have to go back to the place of danger because then we begin to think clearly. We don't think clearly here. We start to act as if this world is, is satisfying enough on its own, as if the end of pleasure here is enough. But it's not. And so the end of all things is near. That temporary nature of this world and the realities of the world to come is where we begin to have wisdom. This is reflected in the Old Testament. Moses said in Psalm 90 verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. David said in Psalm 39, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Solomon reminds us of this in terms of the shortness of life. In Ecclesiastes, you know this, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting because this is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Again, it's a constant theme. We live wisely and we live well when we live in light of the end. And what he's emphasizing here is that end is near. That end is near. It's near. Not necessarily the end of our life, 
We don't know about that. But that the end of all of God's purposes in this world are coming to their culmination. They're soon to be completed. There, is, there are events that are, taking, that are yet to take place that are right at the door. They're right around the corner. And here he changes more to a positive trajectory. In verse 5, it was negative, it's the judgment. In verse 6, it is positive in the sense of there will be vindication. And here he reminds us that the end of all things is near as they are now. And his trajectory really is looking at the world that is to come, which is a world of righteousness. A world in which God's glory is manifest in a way that we long for here, but is yet reserved for the future. We've read this before. 2 Peter 3.13, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heavens and a new earth. And so if you are one who likes to put things in doctrinal terms, this is the doctrine of imminence. It is the doctrine of imminence. And the idea there is this, that it is near. The, the end of all things is near. The language that he uses here has this kind of sense. It's right at the door. It's right at the door. Let me just illustrate this in this way. Peter, or Jesus uses this exact form of this word here when he spoke twice of his betrayal. The betrayer is at hand, and he was speaking of an event that was in the process of taking place at the time and was soon to be realized when Judas would come and reveal him to the Roman authorities, and the Jewish leaders that accompanied them. It was right there. It was going to happen in the next moments. Even as he said it, the events were happening. And that's the idea here. The time is upon you. You could think of it this way. This is an illustration that came to my mind. If, if you were preparing for a surprise party for someone and you were all in the room and you were hidden and you're waiting for the person to come and somebody says... They just pulled into the driveway. They're near. They're just getting out of the car and you'd run to your hiding places and you'd be ready for any moment, at any second, for them to put the key in the door and to walk inside. That's the idea here. It's near. It's near. And this should have a profound impact on how we understand the person and the work of Christ. John the Baptist used this in speaking of the need to repent at the appearance of Christ. He called all men to repentance. And Jesus echoed those words in his own ministry. He said this, from that time in Matthew four seventeen, Jesus began to preach and pray, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same term, same form, actually. It's at hand. And that had a particular significance from the lips of, of Jesus because it is his very presence on the earth it is his very presence among the nation as fulfillment of the promise of the prophets that announced that the kingdom is here in its next phase in its final phase really that God was inaugurating something and he was inaugurating what he promised it was the in breaking with the appearance of Christ first of what sometimes we refer to as the eschatological age. And that's simply to refer to that age that marks the last things. The age at the end. 
the age that will come after the age that we're in presently, the eschatological age. It refers to last things, the last things of God in his redemptive plan. And Peter has already marked that we as believers are in these last days. He said it in verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, For he, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So what does he mean by the last times? So they were nearer to the event, maybe give or take about 30 years from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they had... So he says it to those who are near to the events. We're nearly 2,000 years later. And still, the end is near. The end is near for them. The end is near for us. What does he mean by this language? Because many, many years have passed since then. And we don't know how many more will pass. The idea of being in the last days is from the perspective of God's redemptive purposes. It's from the perspective of God working out his purposes in Christ. So in terms of God's redemption, his fulfilling his promise of redemption, the old covenant system then of shadows and anticipation was completely done away with, with the appearance of Christ. He is its substance. That's what Hebrews and all of scripture points us to. Those were shadows. He was the substance. The sacrifices were a picture. Christ's final sacrifice was once for all. He atoned for sins completely. He made the way and the access into the presence of God full and done. And we have bold confidence through him, no longer through the priest, no longer through the sacrifice, no longer through the temple, no longer through the veil that only the high priest could enter in once a year. Now all who belong to Christ have access to the presence of God in him. So all of those things are done away. And now the people of God, the new covenant, are identified by our unity with Christ, our identity with Christ It's no longer a geographical place, but a person. We are the people indwelled by his spirit. We constitute the new temple. We are the body of Christ and the presence of God on earth. Peter has already said that. He said in verse 9 of chapter 2, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And so it is to say then, all of God's promises of his redemptive work were fulfilled in Christ. He was the beginning of his bringing in this last age. And then when Christ was crucified as the sacrifice, when Christ was raised from the dead in the resurrection, when Christ ascended back to the Father after 40 days with the disciples, when from the right hand of the Father he received the promise of the Spirit and he sent it from heaven, which was poured out on the new covenant church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was an inbreaking of the eschatological age, this last time. It is to say God has accomplished what he promised and now we await merely the establishment and the fulfillment of the fullness of that promise for which we wait, which is the return of Christ. So we live in the last days. We live in the last days. We live in the days in which there is nothing withholding the return of Christ except for the fact that it is a day appointed by God and known only to him. 
So this idea of the last days, the end of all things is near, is then to say that we as believers live in this already not yet kind of tension. This already not yet kind of tension. The work of Christ is completed. We who know him, our sins are forgiven. He has sent the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by him. We are united to Christ. And yet we don't yet know the full realities of everything that he's promised. So in one sense, we already have the first taste of the promises, forgiveness, union, the Spirit. In another sense, we do not have the fullness of those promises. This awaits. And so he says, the end of all things is near. From God's perspective, there's nothing else to happen. It's right around the door. It's right around the door. And I want to emphasize here that what cements that, what What demonstrates that to us and before the world is this. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he was just talking about, which started this whole section. Him who died, him who suffered for our sins, him who died once and all for all, once for all, the just for the unjust, him who went to to the place of prison and proclaimed his victory as the Messiah, him who resurrected And ascended to the right hand of God in verse 22 to be in a place of power and authority and lordship over all of creation, over the church he redeemed. Him who will be the one who brings judgment. Him who is the Lord. He is the one we wait for and his return is right around the corner. The resurrection is what authenticates and guarantees that to all. Acts 17.31 God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness having furnished proof to all men through the resurrection. The resurrection. And so we wait for that. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is not a mere doctrinal point that we affirm as Christians. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection says God has done his work and a new age has begun and you are a part of that new age and yet there's still more to come. It marks the completion of God's work of redemption before the next act. The resurrection proves to us that Christ is going to return and things are going to be set right. The resurrection proves to all of the watching world that he alone is the accepted sacrifice. The resurrection is the very foundation at which the spirit was able to come. The spirit which is a foretaste of the things to be for those who believe in Christ. The end of all things is near. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Because Christ is ruling even now and his enemies are being put under his feet like a footstool. Because Christ is returning and will bring his own to himself and execute judgment on the world and reign in righteousness. So the statement of the end of all things is near reminds us of the imminence of the fulfillment of the promises of God. It could happen at any moment. It's right at the door. It's right at the door. And it's a building block of how we understand reality. It should change how we think about this world. And we need to ask God to help it change us. I have been asking him that. To understand this more, I still see with you so much of my culture that affects me, that shapes me. And I hate it. 
but we need the Spirit to change us. One said this, What he's calling for is a radical new stance towards the world, predicated on the saving event of Christ that has marked off our existence in a totally new way. Therefore, one lives in the world just as the rest. We get married, we sorrow, we rejoice, we buy, we make use of this world. But none of it determines one's life, he says. The Christian is marked by eternity. And therefore, he or she is not under the dominating power of those things that dictate the existence of others. End quote. We live differently. We live otherworldly, as it were. And we do so because we know that God has a purpose that's being fulfilled. And the end of all things is near. This is throughout the New Testament. Paul says it to the Corinthians in chapter 7, talking about marriage and other things. He reminds us again what this author reflected, that we use the world's resources, but with an eye to its temporary nature. We use, we live, we enjoy the good things of God, we accept the trials, but we do it all with an understanding of its temporary nature. So he says in verse 31, Paul does of 1 Corinthians 7, Those who use the world are to be as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Hebrews 10, 25 exhorts us as the church and says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, our encouragement to one another in trials, in battling with sin, in comfort and loss, is to include the reality that the day is coming. That day is drawing near. God will fulfill his purposes. What you experience now is only a part. Don't go down that path of sin because it's not worth it. You're going to stand before Christ. That day is near. Don't ignore the gospel Because he's coming. He's fulfilling his purposes. Don't be anxious. Because God is working out things that you can't fully see right now. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. How do you view the world? How do you think of this world? Of course, these are questions I ask myself. How do you perceive this world? How does that perception and your worldview shape the things that you value and pursue and that you desire? How does it compel you to trust in and have fellowship with Christ? How does it affect the things that tempt you towards sin? How does it affect the things that you think of long term? in your life and how you'll use the years that God gives you. This is just basic. This is part of the DNA of Scripture and particularly of the New Testament. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Let me give you just one example. Don't turn there. I just wanted you to hear this. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, They report to us what kind of reception we had, how you turned from, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And he said, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. To wait for his Son from heaven. It says in chapter 2, 
For who is our hope and our joy, our crown, our exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? His coming? He says in chapter 3, Now may our God and our Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of the saints. He tells those who are grieving because loved ones had died in Christ before them to have encouragement and not grieve without hope because Christ will return and the dead in Christ will rise first and we will join and meet them in the air to be with the Lord forever. He tells those who are suffering suffering in Thessalonica, don't worry because the time is coming where God will met out his judgment to those who are persecuting you. He says it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. That's the vindication, the judgment and vindication, judgment of unbelief, vindication of those who know him, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. The point is this. God is always pointing us to say you, you have wisdom and you live rightly when you're looking to the end. And understand that it's right around the corner. And where should this drive us to? Where should this drive us? Well, in verse 7, where that drives us is to have an attitude of prayer. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. The fruit of having an accurate understanding of the world's end and therefore a proper relationship to it is this. Think clearly, be self-controlled, and be diligent in prayer. Be diligent into prayer. Live in contrast to the world who is marked by anything but self-control. He already just said, don't run to them, in verse 4, to the same excess of dissipation. Don't pursue that course. Dissipation is being under the control of something else. Alcohol, drugs, whatever. That same excess, that same excess of self-indulgence. So he's calling us then to be clear-headed about the world. To be clear-headed about the world. He says, be sensible. This is an imperative, by the way, a command. Be sensible. It's something that we're to pursue Think rationally and sanely in light of what I've just told you. One describes the word this way, to be able to reason and think properly and in a sane manner. In other words, think according to reality. Think according to reality. Paul uses this, interestingly, this term in Romans 12, 3, in this way. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, that's our word, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So he says, think rightly about yourself. In other words, think according to reality. In other words, summarized, you could say this, arrogance is not a display of superiority, but ignorance. To be arrogant is to be ignorant. It's to be ignorant of reality. 
It's to have a wrong view about this world and about yourself. And Paul says, don't go down that road. I think a way to illustrate what he's talking about here is Jesus' own use of this term in Mark 15 to refer to the man who had the legion of demons. You remember that story. We won't turn there, but it provides a striking example, I think, to the point that Peter is making here. And certainly that is an episode where Peter was observing it. He was a part of it. You remember that while under the control of demonic forces, this man that Jesus encountered during his ministry here is described as, by Mark 5.3, as dwelling among the tombs. Dwelling among the tombs. Dark place. He was possessed by a demonic strength that enabled him to break any bonds put on him. And Mark 5 tells us this, that constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs as he lived among them. And in the mountains. And he was gashing himself with stones. He was insane, driven mad by the demonic forces that were in control of him, that had possessed him, that had darkened his mind, that had removed from him all reason, who were at work in his life to destroy him, to bring him to ruin. There's no purpose of that life, in one sense, wasted, out there merely to be gazed at as an oddity and a sad, pathetic creature living among the tombs. The man was cut off from society. He was cut off from friends. He was cut off from family. He was self-destructive in his behavior. He was given to regular fits of insanity that detached him from reality and demonstrated his inner torment, confusion, and inability to function rightly in this world. He was possessed. Upon seeing Jesus, the man ran to him, compelled by the demons in him. He ran to Jesus where the demons spoke to the Lord. What do we have to do with you? After this conversation that was very brief as it's recorded, Jesus cast out these demons, which were legion, into a herd of swine. The swine ran down the hill. You remember they drowned themselves in the water. There were other herdsmen who were there who had seen this whole thing go down. And they left immediately after these pigs were drowned in the water. And they ran into the city to tell others and then they came back with others that they brought with them and Mark notes this that they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon possessed sitting down clothed and here's our word and in his right mind the very man who had the legion Mark tells us and they became frightened in other words here's here it is he was freed from the insanity of the demonic influence and presumably having had placed his faith in the Messiah. Jesus told him to go. He wanted to follow him, but go, no, rather, and tell others what great things God has done for you. He was restored to his sanity. He was self-controlled. He wasn't mad and running around. He understood himself and his world rationally. He was able to have a conversation. He was able even more Gloriously to think rightly about who Christ was. He was fully able to engage with society. In an analogous way, to live in this world without understanding God's purposes, without understanding its ultimate end, without understanding God's holiness, without understanding God's coming judgment on sin, to live in this world without understanding God's purposes in Jesus Christ, without understanding the end for which it's moving, is a kind of spiritual insanity. 
It's a spiritual insanity. It's irrational. It lives outside of reality, ultimate reality. To live in this world without an understanding of its end and to embrace it as if God were not going to destroy it. As if these things were going to last forever. As if the glories of the cross and of the coming age were not true. Is in essence to live in a kind of insanity. A kind of foolishness. A kind of spiritual stupor and stupidity. Which he'll bring out in the next. But a Christian doesn't think that way. On the other hand, we understand the end at which it is, and so we have a rational and a sane and a sober-minded and a sensible view of this world. We understand the significance of these things. And the Christian is the only one that's truly able to think rationally and reasonably about the world. Indeed, Christians are the only ones who live in reality, ultimate reality. Do unbelievers really think they're going to get away with sin? Christians know that's not true. We repent. We turn away from it. Do we really think God is unconcerned about the blasphemy of his name and about a lack of concern for his son and for his holiness and his word? John says to not believe is to call God a liar because we haven't believed the witness that God has borne toward his own son. We think there's no consequence for that. To live that way is insane, but believers don't live that way. We know that it is true, and so we live sanely. We look at the world, and we realize how empty it is, and, but all of the hope and the glory that God has given and promised to us in Christ. It might seem like an oddity to the world. They would look at us and say, we don't live in reality. We're fooled. We're duped. A sort of drug for the masses, an opium for the people, a kind of silliness that Christians live in. A kind of foolishness to be mocked and laughed at. But Christians know differently. We know differently. He uses another word that's similar. Translated here. Sound judgment and sober. Sobriety. It's a word that translates. Well sober. Sobriety. It has literal meaning. It refers to sober. In contrast to drunkenness. He uses it that way in 1 Thessalonians 5. 7-8. And it's a great, again, another picture here, this idea of sobriety. Drunkenness leads to foolishness, doesn't it? Some of us know that by experience, unfortunately. But we can all observe it. You could go to any nightclub or bar and just let them sit there long enough and see how foolish people look when they drink. It's a lack of control. It clouds judgment, drunkenness. It distorts one's sense of reality and what is proper. That's why when you come back to sobriety, it's not uncommon to regret what you did the night before. You acted so foolishly, made a fool of yourself, said things you wish you never would have said, did things you wish you never would have done, and yet you go back to it again. Drunkenness distorts one's sense of reality, what is proper, and usually brings out the most base kind of behavior. God uses this picture of drunkenness and the instability of a drunkard to picture the foolishness of the wicked. Speaking of God's sovereign hand over the wicked, Job notes this. He makes him stagger like a drunken man. Makes him stagger. In the Lord's judgment on Egypt in Isaiah, 
Isaiah describes the foolishness of the leaders in this way. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Get drunk and vomit and then slip on it as they try to walk through the debauchery that they had created. He says that's what it's like spiritually to be an unbeliever, to live in that drunken, inebriated, foolish, unstable state. It's like a drunken man that staggers in his vomit. And in that case, it was a judgment of God. But believers aren't like that. Believers aren't like that. And that's the parallel. Believers are sober. They're the designated drivers, as it were. The ones who are able to still function because the ones who have been drinking are too under the control of alcohol. To be able to even have the basic skills to drive a car safely. And so you need someone who's sober, who still has their wits about them, who's still in control of themselves. And that's what he is, the language that he uses here. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit. Think rightly. Be in control of the way that you live and tells Timothy to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Be in control of your thoughts, your emotions, and your life so that you may act and behave consistent with the truth of Satan and not fall to the wiles of Satan. Peter's going to say the same thing in verse 8 of chapter 5. Be sober of spirit, same word, and be on the alert for your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to... Someone to devour. If we're not sober, we're more susceptible to the deceptions of Satan, to be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ, to go after false doctrine. You can see that kind of spiritual stupor in much of the professing church. Sometimes we see it in our own lives. And what is the result of this? If we're thinking clearly... If we're not inebriated with this sort of spiritual drunkenness and foolishness of the world who doesn't live in reality, who creates their own reality and feels comfort in it. If we don't think that way and live that way, but we live so as to be self-controlled, sober, sound in judgment, what should be the fruit of that in our life? And you can think of a lot of things that he could have said. This is surprising to me anyway. He says this, for the purpose of prayers. For the purpose of prayers. That's interesting, I think. The fruit of right thinking about the end of all things, the return of Christ, the judgment of men, the new heavens and the new earth, the establishment of the kingdom is this. Be diligent in prayer. That's the first thing. One said this way. The prayer that calls upon and submits to God in the light of reality seen from God's perspective and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation. That is the kind of situations that perplex us. In this case, situations of persecution. However, evil times may be a function of clear vision and the seeking of even clearer vision from God. It is only through clear communication with headquarters that a soldier can effectively stand guard. Isn't that a great way to put it? Now, the New American Standard translates this as a singular, for the purpose of prayer, you'll notice. But actually, it's in the plural. It's for the purpose of prayers. The purpose of prayers. And that idea then captures the, the ongoing, the consistent nature of the prayers of God's people in response to the various situations that we're faced with in life. It's 
kind of like the song we sing, Happy Trials and Temptations. What does it go? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. And it's not merely mechanical. One says this, and I'll to give one more quote here. He captured it well. He says this, Peter's love for Christ is intensely personal. He is overwhelmed by the glory of the Lord. He does not, therefore, advocate prayer as a cold, rational exercise. But we might say that he advocates it as a fervent, rational exercise. Fervent love, agonizing intercession. These are the marks of true prayer. It really fits into what he said at the beginning of this section in verse 1, that we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose committing ourselves to prayer, living a righteous life so that our prayers would be heard. He says in 3.7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. The psalmist says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. James warns them that why do you pray and nothing happens? It is because you have conflict in your heart. You have a love for the world. And you're not pursuing God's glory. You want to spend it on yourself as ends. So you really want to know the power of the prayer he's calling for here. It is going to come with the consistency of a righteous life. Of one pursuing righteousness. What are we to pray for? The list could go on. Pray for strength and spiritual battle. Peter would remember Jesus' words in Gethsemane when he said, Watch and pray that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter speaking out of that experience here in part, no doubt. He knew what it was like to fail. He knew what it was like to have Satan as an adversary. And the Lord said, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter knew, particularly when he says, we are adversary, the devil prowls around like a lion, looking for whom he may devour. He knew that. He experienced some of that. And he knew that his victory ultimately was in the Lord's prayer for him. We pray for spiritual wisdom. We pray confessing our sin. We pray for greater faith. We pray for God to send people to help us to understand, to encourage us. We pray casting our anxieties on him. We pray for him daily to lead us to think rightly and to be protected from the law that our culture brings. To open doors for the gospel so that those who are under judgment may escape. The couple at the beginning of the story illustrates this point, and we'll close with this. The writer goes on describing them and says in this way, Each day, each day they prayerfully pursue the spirit of Jesus' direction in order to show the lost the way of salvation. And they are equipping other Christians to do the same. When I say prayerfully, I mean prayerfully. They and their fellow leaders spend a minimum of four hours a day in prayer to God, in prayer in God's word. And frequently fast for extended periods before they go out seeking souls. And they do this because they need to. Spiritual strongholds do not give away. And conversions don't happen unless they do this. They understand Peter's words here. The end of all things is near. Judgment is coming on unbelievers. Vindication of believers is coming as well. And all of the promises God has promised Our salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. That's his point. And so we should be people of prayer, living wisely and soberly, circumspectly in this world. If you don't know Christ, then 
you know the warning. You've heard it. The judgment of God resides on you. If you think that you can get away continually with rejecting righteousness and the truth of Scripture and there will be no consequences, if you think because you don't feel devastated every day that devastation won't come, then there's nothing more that can be said except that you need to repent, you need to consider your life, and you need to come to Christ in whom there is forgiveness and salvation, but only in whom there is forgiveness and salvation. And as believers, we take this and we go, help us to think rightly about this world. Help us to not be attracted to sin. Help us to repent when we are. Help us to live faithfully in this world and not shy away from the consequences of righteousness because they might look ill at us. But to be faithful to the gospel and be faithful to the truth, come what may, arm ourselves with the same purpose of Christ who suffered in the flesh. We need to ask God to help us in this area. Let's pray, and then John will come and lead us in a song. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, O Lord. We are so incapable of this. And in my prayer reflects, I trust, the prayer of many here as well, is that you would show to our hearts, that you would show to our hearts the reality of these truths, which apart from you, Holy Spirit, working in us through the word, illuminating and making it clear, is just words. But we need you to make it the living word within us, shaping, shaping who we are, shaping everything about us. And I pray that you'd call those who don't know you, even this very day, to a saving knowledge of you, O Christ. And it's in your most precious and holy name we pray. Amen.